Lockdown Diaries, episode 17, with Jack Kirby Lowe. Good evening, everyone. It is the 15th of April, Wednesday evening. It is a quarter to six, and I'm taking the dog for a walk slightly earlier than I have done previously. And it's nice and sunny and lovely. How about that? Nice to be out in the daylight. Um, okay, so in this diary entry, I'm going to be talking to you guys about one of my favourite bands. Uh, and that band is Iron Maiden. Yeah. Um, so it, this week, it's the 40th anniversary of the release of their debut album. So I thought, um, as I've been saying, I don't want to just be rambling about doing not much of anything on most of these entries. So I'm sort of want to talk about things that I'm generally interested about because it's stuff I can talk about at length and kind of make it worth people's while. Um, and it seemed pretty fitting to talk about the band Iron Maiden. So what I'm going to do is attempt to give a bit of a potted history of them. Um, I'll say how I came to like them as well. And uh, I, I don't have any notes, I'm just walking with the dog. But <laughs> I think if I was on Mastermind, Iron Maiden would probably be my specialist subject, um, just in terms of a subject I know quite a lot about without having to think too much. So we'll see. But a little disclaimer, uh, facts, figures, dates and things, they're all just coming out of my mind. I would bet on myself being pretty accurate for most of them. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're writing a thesis or something that no, I made, do just check everything rather than taking everything verbatim from my mouth. All right, so how did I get into the band? So I got into Maiden around 2002 slash two. I'm gonna say 2002. Um, I think I would have been in about year eight in school, which is so in year seven, year 11 slash 12, in year eight, year 12 slash 13. So I would have been, um, ooh, there's people I'm trying to avoid. Lots of runners out. I'm in the middle of the road, there's a cyclist coming. Sorry, I would have been, uh, I'm born in September, so. Um, I'd be older in the years. So I'd probably be 30 when I got into Iron Maiden. And <laughs> how I got into them isn't particularly cool. I mean, for one thing, they'd already kind of achieved that legacy band kind of status. They've continued to release new music. But, um, yeah, they're obviously already regarded as kind of a classic act. And that's kind of uh, exemplified by the fact that I'd first been aware of them through the Wheatus song, Teenage Dirtbag. So <laughs> I was a massive Iron Maiden fan. I wasn't actually a massive Wheatus fan. It seems a bit weird to be a fan of what was essentially a one, eh, two hit wonder band. Um, but yeah, I loved them. I loved their first album. I thought it was very cool. I was obviously very cool as well. And this is in the days of like, LimeWire and Kazar and things, and we just actually had quite a lot of uh, <laughs> of uh, material you could find on there, a lot of live stuff, and they had some really quite good, well-written songs, I thought. Um, but anyway, uh, I was also, so yeah, kind of that fairly light punk pop rock stuff was what I was into. Um, these are the days of sort of new metal being at its peak, but I don't think I was ever really that into that kind of heavier stuff. So I don't know, until you before you hear Iron Maiden, and if you've never heard what they sound like, then um I don't know, they look very intimidating. But I'll get on to that. So yeah, um Iron Maiden in the song Teenage Dirtbag, I decided I like the song, I like this band. So this guy obviously likes Iron Maiden too. I'm gonna check them out. So, I went to the library, as I usually often did, and you could get CDs out of the library, and I picked up the Best of the Beast CD, which is exactly what it sounds like. I don't think it's in print or publication anymore, Best of the Beast, but it's a good 
it was a very good uh, intro to the band there was a two disc and a one disc version i believe i had the two disc from the library copied it as you did in your cd burner uh which was the fashion at the time and yeah i, I enjoyed what i heard i think the song that really uh i don't know was the the hook the real okay this is this is going to be a band I like was uh, Fear of the Dark, which uh, has been a sort of a live staple since they released that song on the album of the same name in 93. Um, and yeah, I think the thing that was that really caught me was the intro. So it was a live version that's on this best of album, and the song begins well, there's a heavy, very beginning intro. But then it sort of goes into a non-distorted, uh, almost sort of folksy kind of tune to begin it. And the crowd um, in this recording um, sing along to this intro, and it was just spine-tingling, really. Um, and as well, you get a sense of the of the live performance and the theatricality and the energy uh, from that record as well. So, yeah, uh, I think that was the individual song. And it's mostly, um, uh, yeah, most of their sort of, in inverted commas, hits um, on that record and things. But yeah, I liked it, and I started um, collecting the albums and things um, at the time. Uh, yeah, well, I'll go through chronologically, because I can't really remember uh, which album proper I got to start with. So, yeah, that was my basic, my intro, basically my intro to the band. And then, yeah, so to give you their kind of potted history, um, they first started in one form or other, I think 1975, Christmas Day, I think, is given as the official um, start date for Iron Maiden, um, by Steve Harris, the bassist, primary songwriter, Occasional backing singer, but you should probably refrain from that, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, excuse me. Um, Steve Harris at the band, and I don't know. There's all sorts of. One thing about Iron Maiden is they're very good at sort of recording their own history and things. And there's innumerous, innumerous, maybe just numerous DVDs, books, so on and so forth you can get uh, doing the history and the early days. Uh, documentary DVD. So. Oh, Tripped over the dog. Sort of the main point of contact for that. Um, and yeah, like a lot of bands in London in the East End at the time, they were sort of mixing the energy of punk with the sort of theatricality of and the progressive um, tropes of bands like Jeff O'Toole and Wishbone Ash and things like that. And they were part of the catchily named New Wave of British Heavy Metal. Um, and yeah, so um, hello. they were a bit of a phenomenon in sort of the live scene and after lots and lots of lineup changes in 1980 they released their debut album Iron Maiden that's 40, year old, 40 years old this week um, the lead singer at the time was a chap called Paul Diano uh, Dave Murray, guitarist, was on there uh, Dave Murray and Steve Harris are the only two members uh, that are currently still in the band uh, from that debut album, fun fact. Um, and yeah, um, I think the case would be for the first two I'd made in albums was it was just largely their live set lists. So the material on those two records was just what they were playing and touring by and large um, and had been since, you know, for a few years. Um, yeah, they had built up a very passionate fan base even before they release anything proper uh, there's a demo tape and things but yeah um so that first album it's it's a lot more uh, punky i guess i think i don't know if the band would agree with that but there's sort of an energy to it um that well it's a different sort of energy so i don't, I don't like to talk about energy meaning anything other than actual energy <laughs> but yeah a vibe i don't know there's a sort of uh, in your face, snotty, 
sort of street level vibe to it which yeah it did sort of um i guess win them fans from the punk scene um but also yeah they were definitely sort of rockers as well so yeah that debut album's great there's a lot of songs on there that they continue to play to this day including their self-titled theme track which i think has been played at just about every single gig they've ever done which is fine i mean anyway um <laughs> so there was that and they they went on uh, like the year after i think well for the first five albums they released an album every year uh, which is a work rate i respect i like bands that put out albums once a year that's a good thing in my opinion <laughs> they didn't keep that momentum up but anyway um so yeah the second album was uh, killers 81 um again paul diano on on the vocals they introduced adrian smith um on guitar to replace dennis stratton uh adrian smith is probably my favorite member of iron maiden he's um excellent songwriter he can actually sing backing vocals uh and he's very good at guitar as well he's got a more sort of um uh, i don't know melodic sort of style to his soloing and his uh um and his melodies and riffs and things, whereas Dave Murray is more of a sort of souped-up kind of blues approach. Um, but yeah, so again, with the style of that, it was the slightly more proggy elements that were brought in, um, which is quite good, in my opinion. But yeah, um, those first two albums, they're not... For all the imagery of the band, and the sort of the violence and the scary zombie mascot that they've got and the scary font that's in the... Uh, their their um, band logo is in. The actual music isn't actually that sort of heavy. I mean, I think for 1980, 1981, they probably were around the heaviest things around, but this is before like thrash metal really took off. It's certainly before death and black metal really took off. And I think, um, I don't know, one thing that people who don't know the band and maybe aren't so familiar with the genre, they assume that all metal is just sort of screaming and blaring and shouting um, which can be a lot of fun and some metal is that but I mean really isn't um, the singing is proper singing there's melodies harmonies in the guitar parts um, I don't know I, I think Maiden themselves I think they've sort of by far have been the most popular act to remain from the scene that they emerged in um, um, but yeah, they're not, they're not really scary. I don't know. It's hard to, hard to say. I mean, they are heavy and they, they do, you know, but they're not blaring and shouting and things. They're quite accessible, really. And I, I you know, if you're, <laughs> I don't want to damn with prayers or anything, but if you're sort of more into your sort of 80s stadium rock and things like Guns N' Roses and Bon Jovi and that kind of thing. They're really, they are different, definitely. And there's more technicality and artistry. And I would say they're, hev they're definitely heavier than Bon Jovi and definitely heavier in a sense than uh, Guns N' Roses and things. But they can tell the difference, but they're not, if that's what you like, but you thought, oh no, I'm made and too scary. Then no, it's, it's really not that different in some ways. Hmm. I'm not sure I'm selling this, but the fact is, like, if you think it's all just horrible screaming nightmares, it's not. It's it's tuneful, uh, well-written songs, and yeah, just just try for goodness' sake. <laughs> they're all they're all, I guess with Maiden, their bark is a lot worse than their bite. So the themes and the imagery that they sing about and that their music is packaged in is always a lot more scary than the music itself. I don't know. I don't know, I've listened to a fair bit of metal and things and it's hard for me to sort of judge what an outsider thinks of the genre, but there you go. So anyway, uh, 1981 second album, Paul Ziano's on the vocals, a bit more proggy, but still kind of that uh, sort of street level, club level kind of music. And uh, Steve Harris, the band leader, and the manager, Rod Smallwood, they had quite a lot of ambitions uh, for the band. They wanted to be as big as possible. Paul Diano was a bit of a liability, has to be said, apparently. Um, and as well, his vocal range, whilst he was impactful and a good showman, he wasn't the most talented singer necessarily in the world. So they poached 
hired and got uh, Bruce Dickinson, uh, who was in the band Sandstill at the time, and hired him to be the new singer, kicked out Paul Diana. Uh, and yeah, Dickinson is one of the, in my opinion, finest metal vocalists, certainly, and I would just say general, in general vocalists, his range and his diction and his songwriting as well, he brings to the table. He's just amazing. And just, if anyone has seen them live, he's just a wonderful, wonderful frontman. If you could sort of design an all-star band to play an amazing gig, uh, I think you'd want the uh, showmanship of Bruce Dickinson right in there. Uh, and it's with his hiring that they released the third album, which is the sort of most famous one, Number of the Beast, uh, which is great. All the material for that was written fresh, so it wasn't mining stuff that they'd been touring before. Um, and yeah, uh, that's kind of the album that really defined their style. You've got the whole galloping bass line, that feel. Um, uh, again, the sort of the imagery that they're playing with, there's literary allusions and things in there that you might not necessarily expect. Um, I don't know, I've always thought it was a little bit unfair, but I think metal stereotypes is kind of a dumb genre of music, but that's really not the case, certainly with uh, um, Maiden's approach, and certainly their approach to songwriting and things. Um, and you've got classic tracks on there, like uh, Run to the Hills, which is probably their most famous song. Just, I mean, listen to that and tell me it's not about melody and uh, stadium sing-alongs. It's all very well designed to be enjoyed by people, I think. Um, Number of the Beast, the title track as well. I think, again, this, for as many fans as it wins over, I think the whole fact that they've sort of dappled with the songs about Satan and stuff, I guess that puts people off. But they're really not Satanists by any stretch of the imagination. It's all a bit of fun, really, to play with, I would suggest. And... Uh, current, well, I say current, the drummer that joined on the next album and has remained with the band ever since is a born-again Christian and things, so I really don't think there's any issue there if that was a stumbling block for you. But anyway, Number of the Beast, I think, went to number one in the UK, and yeah, after that they kind of started to become metal megastars, really. Um, and yeah, um, there's a live album that's available, one of the collectors boxes at the time, Beast of a Hammersmith, which is just fantastic. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's played incredibly fast, but it's obviously just all songs from those first three albums which purists will see absolutely no fault with. Um, so that's great, although not readily accessible. Um, and yeah, so they followed that up the following year, 83, with um, Peace of Mind, which is a pun. Get it, um, and that <laughs> lineup changed every album, and that one brought in Nico McBrain, the uh, famously eccentric but excellent drummer, and that sort of solidified the classic lineup that would stay the same for the next few albums, and it's really sort of the uh, yeah the most well heralded, well respected, well known lineup of Maiden that won them the most fans and their creative highlights and things. Um, so yeah, Peace of Mind is another fantastic record. It's uh, The Trooper is probably the most famous song on that. Again, pretty much played every gig since. Just a great exercise in guitar riffs and melody and again that sing-along thing. Um, I think it's worth sort of saying the, the twin guitar sound, uh, so two lead guitarists harmonising off each other, trading solos, um, working in harmony on the riffs and things, that was definitely part of the vision for the band that was there from the start, inspired by like Wishbone Ash and Thin Lizzy. Again, if you like Thin Lizzy, like it's not, not a great leap to Maiden from that, certainly the 80s stuff. Um, and yeah, Adrian Smith and Dave Murray, who I believe were school school friends, they're such a good guitar partnership. And that's really exemplified on 
uh, peace of mind. I would say my personal favourite song on that is the opening track, Where Eagles Dare. Again, one of the many maiden songs inspired by films or literature. Um, it begins, it's great, it has sort of an introduction to the new drummer, in which he plays this fantastic um, drum intro, which uh, Steve Harris um, dictated. So as a main song, like you sort of home or whatever, whatever he wanted the other musicians to play, and he sort of has this drum intro, and uh, uh, he said you need to play it with a double bass player. So for those that don't know, think of the bass drums with the kick drums, the drum you stamp on a pedal and the beater thing hits the drum. Well, in a lot of metal and heavy music, you use a, you can use a double one. So you use both feet on two pedals and go like that. So that was that was a little impression of a drum there. So yeah, on the on the intro, so I said, well, to play this really quick intro, you'll need a double bass pedal, but my brain refused to use one on principle, and just practiced until he could do it with one foot, which I believe he still does in his 70s now, which uh, I think is impressive. If you're a drummer, you'll have to let me know if that's impressive. Uh, listen to Where Eagles There and tell me. But yeah, it's such a good riff, amazing vocals, it uses... Um, sort of sound effects and things, and you can be shy about putting in a little bit of extra sound, so like the sound of aeroplanes and things like that. So yeah, a wonderful song, really good to run to as well. Um, yeah, so that's Peace of Mind, great, great album. The fifth album, 1984's Power Slave. Um, Again, I think by fans, uh, they really hold this one in high regard, and it's it's in my top five, I think. That's exactly where I what. Um, Power Slave is again just a band at the peak of their powers. Um, you've got Ace is High was sort of the main lead single of it. Again, another fantastic song with many great <laughs> songs about aeroplanes. Um, amazing riffs on that. Again, really exemplifying the dual guitar sound. Um, what else have we got on the album? The title track, Power Slave, Brewster Gibson wrote that. Uh, really good example of songwriting, evocative lyrics. Very, uh, yeah, I don't know, he's very interested in the occult and things like that. Uh, his lyrical approach in comparison to Harris it's quite good. So sort of Harris is all about sort of the melody and making the words fit in, whereas Dickinson's more about getting the words in, I think. I've seen that written down somewhere. But yeah, uh, that's really good. And the closing track on the album, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's uh, heavily influenced by the Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem. Uh, a lot of lyrics just word for word. Um, but yeah, it's their, it was their longest song by far at the time, 13 minute long. That's the thing I, I think that's made them progress, their songs get longer and longer. So yeah, 13 minute epic about a chap on a boat who kills a um, albatross and is cursed for it. And it's great. Uh, the dynamics of it, it ebbs and flows, it tells a story through music. Um, and yes, it's just a great example of what you can do with the genre of metal, I think. I think that's a good analysis of it, in my opinion. So yeah, just sort of quite experimental, interesting, and doing stuff that not many other acts were doing. Um, and yeah, just, I know, it's just a great song as well. It's got exciting bits, it's got rumorative bits, it's got... Um, Really impressive musicianship again. Each musician, drums, guitars, bass, vocals, all sort of operating at their absolute peak. Um, I think I don't know. I feel like metal and sort of dance music. It's about there's a comparison there. It's about sort of pushing things to the limit and pushing music into more and more extreme sort of interpretations. And I think there's something comparable to that if you're in a 
if you're at a rave or a house party or if you're in a stadium listening to metal it's sort of about being transported by the music that you just don't really get on the radio I guess I don't know that's a bit clumsy thing as I say I'm just sort of ripping this off the top of my head but um, yeah that's uh, I think there's a comparison there uh, they went on a massive massive enormous enormous super big world tour off the back of Power Slave uh, which was amazing they recorded an infamous live album live after death off the back of it again really good interest of the band music from the first five albums uh obviously which is really really good but it kind of exhausted the band and they took a break for a year or so or less some time anyway uh before they came back with their sixth album somewhere in time Bruce Dickinson didn't write anything on this one because he was a bit creatively worn out wanted to go in a slightly different direction that first the band didn't agree with or Steve Harris didn't anyway but Adrian Smith's songwriting really comes to the fore on this one. Uh, Wasted Years, again, the sort of lead single off the album is just a beautiful song. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, I feel like uh, it's a fan favourite. It was a hit single as well, but I kind of feel like it's, it's you know, Run to the Hills and Can I Play With Madness get occasional radio airplay. I really think Wasted Years should do. It's a lot more poppy and accessible in its approach. It's just a lovely song, hypnotic sort of riff. Um, you know, they're not singing about dungeons and dragons and stuff. They're singing about being on the road and missing your family and things. And it's just a, it's a wonderful song, really. <laughs> Can't recommend it highly enough. Um, Caught somewhere in time. The title track is great. Um, yeah, it's a good album overall, but there's fewer songs in it that really stand out to me. That one. But again, another uh, sort of classic uh, run of albums that they had in the in the 80s. Um, seventh Son of a Seventh Son in 88, their seventh album. That's my personal favourite Maiden album. So again, it's the last album in this classic lineup. Uh, they sort of dabbled a little bit with synths in um, previous album, and now they sort of got full on with the synths a bit, which is great and amazing sound. The lead track. Moonchild is one of my favourite songs. It's just so full of, uh, I don't know, aggression, excitement. Um, again, Bruce Dickinson's songwriting uh, is re-energised and again, his sort of uh, conjuring of occult imagery and uh, spine-tingling stuff, really. <laughs> Amazing guitars on it. Um, and the album is loosely conceptual. There's not a story particularly, but um, it, yeah, awesome stock cards. Seventh Son, it's sort of inspired by, but yeah, it's about uh, clairvoyancy and seeing the future and chosen ones and stuff. Um, again, the uh, title track, a little bit like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, a long epic piece, lots of shifting dynamics and parts and movements to it really good but also on this album you've got some again sort of iron men's equivalent of a pop single so you've got this proggy heavy exploratory stuff and then stuff that is that does get played in the radio like uh, can i play with madness which is just sort of a sing-along with a jaunty little synth melody in the background of the chorus and um uh the evil that men do is just a fantastic maiden single so with maiden you've got like You've got a slew of like four to five minute inverted commas singles. Well, you know, they did put them out as singles, but they're sort of the accessible sing-along chorus stuff. And you've also got the seven or eight minute long epics and not much in between really. Uh, well, <laughs> broad strokes. But yeah, Seventh Son is just an amazing album. You can listen to it like 40 minutes. It feels like you've been on a epic adventure listening to it, but it's really quite a quick one. But just again, the I think that was the band at the peak of their powers that they wouldn't see again for like another 12 years at least because following that Steve Harris had wanted to get back to a bit more back to the roots kind of thing a bit more street level metal kind of rock and roll approach as was a bit closer to the first couple of albums I think in their sound um, and No Prayer for the Dying was yeah a lot more back to basics I don't think it has on it, I could be wrong there, but yeah, um, 
uh, Adrian Smith was more like, well, no, I want to go in the Seventh Sun direction and take it more proggy and more interesting than the Back to Basics. So he left. He does have a songwriting credit, and I think he had parts recorded on one or two of the songs. Um, uh, they brought in Yannick Gers to replace him, who again remains in the band. Great songwriter, different approach. He's got sort of a quite eccentric guitar player. Um, yeah, again, a sort of a foil to Maureen Smith <coughs> as well. Um, but yeah, his approach to songwriting and guitar work is quite interesting. It's uh, avant-garde. Well, within the... <laughs> he's not a jazz player or anything, but yeah. Quite interesting approach. But anyway, um, I don't really like No Prep for Dying. It's got a couple of fun songs on it, but uh, I'm with Adrian Smith. I prefer the sort of... The proggy interesting thing rather than the back to basics thing and it did have their first number one single bring your daughter to the slaughter which again is a song that people will recognize more than others but really isn't very indicative of uh, the overall mood and the sound um and it basically got to number one by being put on 18 different tapes cds records and things and the maiden fans just bought every everyone bought every single copy and it was uh, immediately after Christmas or something, so it's quite engineered to be a number one, I think. Not, you know, that's fine. But yeah, it wasn't like a maiden fever taking over the world, particularly or anything at that point. I followed up, um, that was 1990, 1992, Is Fear of the Dark? Did I say that earlier? I don't know. Um, which, again, you've kind of got some of the back to basics thing but it sort of does marry the more epic and more metally approach of the mid 80s it's all right it's better than no prayer it's not a classic but the title track obviously is amazing and there's a couple of other quite fun songs on there but again i feel like it's back to the album did go to number one but it, i think in the canon it's it's very few people's favourite, but there are some nice selections on it. Judas Be My Guide. Very catchy, and again, a short song. And it's surprising they didn't put that one out as a single, because it's really good, and <laughs> uh, probably would have sold all right. Um, but yeah, it's broadly fine. Three, three out of five, I don't know, at best, probably that album. Um, unfortunately, following that, Bruce Dickinson left. Um, uh, yeah... I mean, he wanted to spread his wings a bit and try different stuff. He'd already released one solo record. I'm not going to go into Bruce Dickinson's solo career, but I could. But it's, it's also got some real good albums in there, but I'll save that for another time. Um, <laughs> anyway, he left the band to pursue other bits and pieces. We sort of announced his um, departure uh, while they still had a tour book. So they went, it was sort of a farewell tour of sorts, but the atmosphere apparently was just awful. <laughs> going on stage and um, I think certainly Nicole McBrain really wasn't impressed and yeah probably not a great vibe in the maiden camp at that time. They replaced Bruce with uh, Blaze Bailey from the band Wolfsbane. Don't know anything about them but they were around and doing all right in the early 90s. Um, Blaze Bailey seems like a thoroughly decent guy, really nice chap and just very humble and his sort of recognition of his place in the the maiden legacy is he's got to admire him for it but he certainly isn't as talented a singer as Bruce Dickinson um, I haven't seen any footage of him doing any live gigs it's probably out there but I haven't seen it so I don't know what he's like as a showman but yeah it's a bit of a shame I mean I think he, the, the new material that they put with Blaze, he performs fine. I think in singing the older songs, he was kind of shown up by and just obviously not as good at performing them, unfortunately. And they released The X Factor, um, was the album in 95, the first with Blaze Bailey. And do you know what? It's, it's a complicated album. It was Steve Harris was going through a divorce and writes got a credit on every song on that one but the vast majority of it's um, Steve Harris a lot of the songs are very gloomy some are quite samey they're quite interesting but um, again 
did need to double check this. I think he produced the album by himself. I don't think he had a co-producer on it. And I think that shows, I mean, obviously, um, well, not obviously, but I don't think he's as talented a producer, certainly at that point, to, um, where are you going, Luda? Luda's going in a hedge. We're not going, Luda. I think he needed a co-producer rather than do it by himself. I think he'd had dabbles in some of the later albums. Um, but Martin Birch, their long-time producer, had retired by that point. And the sound, the sound ain't great. It sounds a bit like it's recording in a box for some of it. Um, and I think, yeah, having a external presence would have helped some of the songs a bit. Uh, you know, too, some of it indulgent, I think. It was their, definitely their longest album at the time. Um, but yeah, Sign of the Cross is quite good. Judgment of Heaven, The Unbeliever, they're all right, but um, they're certainly lacking something by not having Bruce. I feel like Adrian Smith's presence would have fleshed those songs out a bit more in the different guitar parts and production, as I say. But yeah, it's uh, a lot of people really like it. I think Steve Harris personally likes the album a lot, but whether he's explained that to <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, because <laughs> he likes, I, I, whether he's just saying that to Ed. You know, be nice to Blaze Bailey and be it's a lot of his own work. Um yeah. Anyway. Um the follow up to that was in nineteen ninety eight, Virtual Eleven, which I think the general consensus is this is the worst album. I certainly don't have a lot of time for it. There's uh <laughs> um The Clansman is the song on there that people do like a sort of Scottish epic kind of thing. Based on Braveheart. Um yeah, which is quite good, and Bruce Dickinson does a great version of it. But um, yeah, it's not. I think the the Nadir is uh, the song "When Two Co Worlds Collide," which is literally, as far as I can tell, about two worlds colliding, two planets. <laughs> I'm sure it's supposed to be a metaphor, but uh, some of those lyrics are very, very literal. Um, yes. You've also got The Angel and the Gambler, which is sort of an infamous Maiden song. There's, when I first heard it, it was on a, a DVD of all their um, music videos. And it's sort of, again, it's like the four-minute single. It's quite catchy. It's quite synthy. Again, it's a metal song. Again, kind of a pop approach. Very repetitive chorus. But on the album, it's like eight minutes long. And it's not doing anything interesting. It's just repeating the chorus for another four minutes. It's bizarre. Um, and again, probably a sign that the band should have got um, a better air producer in to help Steve Harrison to say, no, we're going to cut that after the 18th chorus. Anyway, um, the band was sort of at its worst commercial performance in years and years. They've always been a commercial entity, I think. I don't think there's any hiding from that. Yes, they're about the music and they're about putting on a great live show, but they've certainly always been concerned with making sure they sell enough records and make a lot of money and things, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that as such, particularly when sort of the creative and the commercial are put together because um, following those two quite poor, poorly received albums, they brought back Bruce Dickinson, they set Blaze Bailey, very sad, but set Blaze and brought Bruce back was the right decision and they also brought in Adrian Smith again so um, they had a free guitar lineup which again opens up a lot of more musical possibilities um, and yeah they, they they did a sort of a well it was a computer game Ed Hunter with an accompanying I've not played it I think it's quite a 90s sort of shoot 'em up kind of thing um, but they released a soundtrack album to that as well which is just another greatest hits by any other name um, and, yeah, so they went on a bit of tour with that, Bruce back in the band, and Adrian as well, and they recorded Brave New World, and released that in the year 2000. Um, Ludo's gone mad. Ludo the dog is sniffing at a grass verge, and will not be dissuaded from it. But Brave New World, 2000, it, I don't know, I feel like a lot of stars are aligning. Obviously the two members of the classic lineup were back. It was a new millennium. Um, metal, like the new metal scene, was suddenly popular again after being not so popular during the 90s. 
and yeah just a lot of things went right for that and the album itself is is just brilliant so you've got obviously smith and dickinson contributing to the songwriting steve harris seems re-energized um dave murray and yannick gers also contribute to some great songs and yeah it's again a long album and they really embrace the sort of their prog progressive tendencies um and yeah it's they've brought in um Kevin Shirley's producer. Yeah, some people don't like him, but he's certainly improved the sound compared to the 90s albums and or the Blaze Bailey albums anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, Brave New World is a genuinely, it's at least as good as sort of the mid 80s classic. So the number of the beast, the seventh son, it's up there with that run of albums, I would definitely say. Really, really good. And again, <laughs> they, they went on another big tour with it. Hugely successful. And they released Rock in Rio, a live album. So Rock in Rio Festival in Brazil. Um, they played to a quarter of a million people. And the DVD and the live album, I th- yeah, that, as I say, that was kind of around the time I was getting into them. So it was one of the certain, one of the first things I got the DVD album. I don't know, but again, it's just amazing. The recording is fantastic. You can really hear the crowd fantastically well. I think that's something they always said about live after death was you couldn't really hear the crowd sound as much as the band on stage could so there's subsequent live releases of which there are several they really focus on that and it sounds fantastic on rock in the air great set list uh, obviously quite focused on the album but um you've got a couple of you know, so you've got the clansman and sign of the cross so two of the blaze bailey songs that bruce dickinson now sings and he just really brings them to life um so yeah fantastic um, the follow-up to that, well, I think they put out Edward the Great, another kind of greatest hits. They also put out the Eddie's Archive box set at that time, so that had the aforementioned uh, Hammersmith, Number of the Beast live album on it. It's got a B-Sides um, album on it, and it's uh, live at the BBC Archive, so a lot of live material the BBC had recorded over over. Well, quite a long period of time. It's got early 80s stuff and mid 80s stuff on there, including their first headlining set at Monsters of Rock at Donington, as it was, which is great. <laughs> uh, that was the Seventh Son tour, legendary gig. Anyway, um, so that sort of collects thing came out. You also got like a little sort of family tree showing you all the different uh, lineup changes and bands that different members have come from and gone to and such which is really cool i've got that love it <laughs> pride of place in my collection so the follow-up studio album was um dance of death 2003 so this would be their 13th album i think at this point we're up to um now i love dance of death and i think the main reason for that it was the first album they released subsequent to me becoming a fan of the band if that makes sense so the first new material so i was hearing it for the first time going back through a collection that everyone was familiar familiar with already and i absolutely loved it really really blew me away um i mean i would have been 13 14 i guess at the time uh, and i guess at that age you are just so susceptible to i don't know embracing and enjoying new music in a way that i I listen to a lot of new music, I sort of force myself to listen to new stuff and not just go back through old things, but I don't know, records, I find it a lot more difficult for them to latch onto me in a way that they just would when you were in your early teens and things, so, I mean, sorry, so yeah, and that was just such a wonderful album for me, and on the subsequent, subsequent tour, that was the first time I saw them, um, again, just <laughs> almost religious experience, I think. Um, a highlight, I guess, from that record is uh, Passchendaele, which is a sort of World War One poetry-inspired track. Again, it's got sort of different movements, different dynamics. It does some really interesting guitar work. Adrian Smith is the main songwriter on that. Just so evocative, so spine-tingling just musically complex and musically interesting but again catchy accessible 
it's eight minutes long but it doesn't feel like it it's wonderful definitely listen to that song one of my top five songs i think um unfortunately i think there's only a couple of clangers on it you've got um nico mcbrain's first songwriting credit on um oh god what's the song called new frontier sorry it took me a second which is about human cloning and it's just a bit i don't know <laughs> um sort of a it's a the song is a warning about the dangers of cloning it just feels a little bit ham-fisted really and i don't think anyone's really you know having to make these moral decisions in quite the same way as is described in the song just yet um and the other one is a bit daft is age of innocence which is a good song musically but lyrically it's a little bit i don't know dare i say it, a little bit daily mail <laughs> just uh crime and youths doing crime crime the trend crimes in trend on trend crime is fashionable according to the song um which i mean at this point they're in their sort of mid to late 40s uh, so maybe that's um maybe that's just the way songwriting goes but yeah it, and bruce Springsteen almost a rap he shouts some lyrics quite quickly in a shouty voice rather than a singing voice so yeah go with Go with warning on that one. But yeah, that was a tour I saw him on. Um, and then they sort of go into a bit of a pattern of like touring the new album and then touring a sort of greatest hits or retro kind of set list. Again, they know what side their bread is buttered on and things. And at this point in their career, a lot of their fans are fans because of the classic stuff and they don't listen to the 90s stuff and they wouldn't listen to the reunion era stuff. So they have to kind of cater to those audiences and they did the early days tour which was yeah it came out sort of coinciding with the release of um, one of the documentaries I was talking about and the set list was just from those first four albums again I saw them on that tour at the Leeds festival in 2005 again really good uh, and I mean I mean I was a relatively new fan at that point but a lot of songs that all the fans wouldn't have heard for a long time so again really good uh yeah like that one the next album after down to death was a matter of life and death uh, which was in 2006. Uh, they've never really described it as a concept album but i think it could be i would consider it almost one a lot of songs about war and sort of politicians and life and death i mean a lot of main albums have a lot of songs about war life and death and things but it definitely felt um like it was in response to the iraq war and things like that i'm fairly certain a lot of the song lyrics are and again it's just really interesting like i i think it's quite a relevant album i think it's musically adventurous and again this thing is a band on their 14th album in their definitely well into middle age I think it sounds vital and exciting. I guess I would have been uh, 16, 17 at the time it was released, and it, you know, I thought it was great. Um, yeah. Um, what songs on there? I mean, the lead single, Different World, is amazing. Uh, For the Greater Good of God is fantastic. They brought that back onto their recent live show. Uh, the Legacy is fantastic. The Lord of Light is They're all good. I don't think there's any bad songs on that. Um, so, I, yeah, again, I would probably put A Matter of Life and Death in top five albums, certainly, maybe top three. Um, but, yeah, wonderful song. And they sort of, I think they, as a band, were really pleased with it. And I think that's indicated in the fact that when they went on tour with it, they played the, first, the whole album um, front to back. Which I think was a bit of a trend at the time. I think I remember reading a lot of bands were sort of touring and doing a whole album. I mean, it probably still is a thing. I imagine it's something people have done all the time. But anyway, they made and certainly did, which was quite a bold choice. They usually only play about four or five songs from a new album and then um, classics. Um, but yeah, playing the whole thing. I think, again, it was met with a bit of controversy, but, you know, they are they are sort of willing to put the new stuff out there on those tours and they stood by it and I, I certainly appreciate it at the time I thought the album was amazing it was great to see all of them live um, 
yeah, loved it. So again, that was my third time of seeing them. Um, yeah, liked that one. Um, again, they did a another sort of a, a sort of interesting one actually. The next tour they did after that was ooh, I can't remember what they called it, but it was they the set list was ninety percent comprised of songs from the two thousands albums. I think they had Fear of the Dark in there and the Iron Maiden the song. Um but yeah the the vast majority of the rest of the set was noughties things. And again I think that's indicative of, you know, they're not a they didn't want to be a cabaret act necessarily, just roll out the hits all the time. They do do that from time to time. But they you know, they were sort of saying, look, our body of work from the two thousands is just as valid as what was popular in the eighties and I absolutely stand by that. I think uh 2000s work is just as good as the 80s work. A lot of it's better, uh, frankly. Um, don't let nostalgia get in the way. Um, the more recent stuff is is fantastic. You can leave the 90s, but the <laughs> but the uh, 80s and 2000s is Maiden's creative peak, and I think that tour was kind of about that. Unfortunately, that song when I kind of went a little bit behind on Maiden. I think I sort of slightly. Um, Mm, I've missed somewhere, they did the Somewhere Back in Time tour, which, like the first for albums tour, this was sort of the first, mm, well, it was sort of a rehash of the 1985 um, Power Slave era tour. And I think, yeah, I didn't go to see them on that. I think it's the one time they've toured uh, that I've not, I've you know, chosen not to go and see them. Just I was like, I don't know, how's that uni? A little bit. I'm trying to find new things. And stuff so yeah didn't go to that one but i did go to the modern era tour i'm confusing a little bit which when those both were but um yeah the the next album after that was called the final frontier sort of vaguely spacey themed and sort of loaded with sci-fi on somewhere in time but again going back to that kind of space imagery it's again it's uh it's an interesting album because I was a little bit not as into them as I had been before or since. I didn't really stick with it so much, but there's some really interesting stuff about it. Again, every single album gets a little bit more proggy, and again, they embrace a lot of the prog influences on this. Um, it starts with a sort of industrial sort of metal, industrial metal kind of intro. Which is really good. <laughs> One of the most interesting things to the album. But it is just sort of like a four minute demo. It's a shame they didn't do anything more with that Nathan Smith thing. And then they go into a fairly by the numbers plodding kind of rocker in to the final frontier of the song itself. Which is fine, but <laughs> Yeah. It was alright. Um but yeah, there's other good stuff on there. I think it's got probably uh, my favourite song of theirs ever maybe which is weird the album i sort of disengaged from has got my favorite song on it but yeah um the talisman just a wonderful song <laughs> again it's got different parts to it it starts folksy and quiet and interesting and then it's just this absolutely breath breathless sort of riff it's very fast the lyrics are just so full of it's about um uh, people crossing the atlantic to reach america and just getting into storms and everyone dying and it's just so full of sort of hope and fear and death and life <laughs> and everything in between sorry i'm not describing individual songs very well but um i just love it the music is so powerful bruce dickinson sings his absolute lungs out just amazing the live version is very good as well obviously they did it as a live album <laughs> on the subsequent tour but um yeah really good um <laughs> yes i can't recommend that song enough and the album again it's, there's a lot of good stuff on it it's probably more if you are sort of using this as a reference guide to getting into maiden it's probably something if you try the big hitters and if you like them then yeah go back look at the sort of more obscure and interesting stuff and I guess the final frontier sits in that kind of bracket. Um so yeah, toward that live album, fine. Um and then I think the next thing they did was sort of the um 
throwback to the 88 kind of tour to see my seventh son, so I won't see him on that. My biggest regret, <laughs> that's just such a good set list. So yeah, Elijah Bass around seventh son, my favorite album. Um, a really, really good set list. But um, when I went to see him, I went to see him by myself, as is, uh, I'm perfectly happy to go see bands I love by myself. I don't really need other people there to make me want to go or not. But um, I got too drunk. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's really bad and quite embarrassing, really. But I, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a Saturday, I think. I think I was, I was at my flat, I was living at the time, had a few sharpeners there, uh, probably had a drink or two on the uh, under overground on the way to the O2. Uh, did I have any? Yeah, I can't remember, but I, whatever I was drinking, I drank too much of it. Um, I was coming in, I don't know. I think my wake-up call was the guy in security saying, just go and take a walk around the block and come back later to sit the whole time, which is really stupid, because it's such a great gig. I mean, I remember enjoying it, but do I remember much of it? No, not really. <laughs> I was pretty much on the front row, though, because I took hundreds of photographs. I like to take a few photos at a gig, but clearly I was not in my best of senses. Um, I've got some really good photos, though, <laughs> which I use as desktop backgrounds and things, but yeah... I'm, I hope I behave myself, and I'm just sad with myself for just drinking a little bit less and remembering a bit more. That would have been nice. But yeah, cracking tour. Don't understand. Um, <laughs> uh, so, what follows that? Uh, I guess it kind of getting more or less up to uh, more, um, present day, which, well, sort of. So, the most recent album after that is. The Book of Souls, so the first double album. Um, again, uh, really interesting, a lot of great songs on there. But in my opinion, I think it would have been, I think if it was a single album and they just had the very best songs on there rather than the best songs and the all right songs as well and made a double. Um, I think, yeah, if it was just one disc, it would be one of their very best albums. A lot of people do think it's one of their very best albums. Um, but yeah, it's, there's a lot of really cool stuff on there. The first song, If Eternity Should Fail, is a Bruce Dickinson solo thing. It was going to be for his new latest upcoming rumoured solo album, but um, Steve Harris nicked it. So it's a bit weird, a bit different from what Maiden usually do, but very good. Again, very spooky and weird and a bit more narrative based which is a bit silly because there's none of the rest of the album's narrative on the on the book of souls but um great song a lot of people love that song including me um Death of glory is great another song about airplanes bruce dickinson and adrian smith great riff um the book of souls the title track is fantastic i love it it's a sprawling mayan epic um, again, lots of moving parts to it. Uh, very good groovy kind of riff. Um, yes, I like it. I mean, there's definitely a uh, house style that Maiden have got in the personalities. You've got your slow acoustic intro, you've got your big riff, your big song and chorus, you've got your middle section where all three guitarists do a bit of guitaring, and then you go back and then you play the quiet riff at the end. That's sort of the uh, model for the seven minute plus epic that Maiden do. But yeah, that's great. Um, you've also got uh, the closing track, Empire of the Clouds, which is another exciting, interesting one. 18 minutes, I think this is their longest song now. Um, no, I'm sure it is. I think it's 18 minutes. Anyway, um, again, another Bruce Dickinson solo composition, and in a bit of a first, um, it was composed on the piano, and the piano is sort of the lead. Uh, instrument on it. Now, Dickinson isn't known particularly for his piano skills. I did play to Lauren, who is a pianist of some talent. Uh, she thought it was a bit basic, but <laughs> I'm not a pianist either, so I thought it was really cool. Um, so it is good. Really lovely uh, sort of uh, piano piece. Again, sprawls, loads of different parts. Uh, it's got an orchestra as well. Gotta have an orchestra guys um so yeah really good it's about again in sort of his esoteric approach it's about the 
um, disaster of the R101 airship in the um, uh, beginning of the 1900s. Uh, yeah, <laughs> how many songs are written about that? I don't know. Probably loads. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it's a fantastic sprawling epic song. Sprawling epic song. If you like sprawling epic songs, listen to Iron Maiden. Um, but yeah, there, there are a couple of duds on the album. Now, a lot of people really liked it, but I do not like the red and the black, which is a Steve Harris solo thing. And that's again, like a 13 minute track. It's just quite unimaginative to me. The riffs just very repetitive. It doesn't really go anywhere. Once it started, that's sort of what you've got for the next 13 minutes. Um, it's got some whoa, whoa, whoa bits, which are, I mean, I know they sort of, all the songs are engineered for stadiums and things, but I felt a bit too cynical and on the nose. They've got a lot of fans in non-English speaking territories, uh, certainly in South America. And you can't help but think having a whoa, whoa, whoa chorus is just a great way of getting more sing-alongs for your live album. Is that a bit cynical of me? I don't know. <laughs> As well, the, the vocal melody, uh, it really just sort of follows along exactly as the um, instrumental melody. So I don't really care for that. I think it's a bit unimaginative. And the lyrics are a bit clumsy as well, I think. There's a thing that really sticks out for me in songs. I hope I'm not going to ruin any songs no one likes, but whenever songwriters use the word just to, you know, increase the syllables that they need to get a line to work, that really annoys me. <laughs> um, I think there's a line that you'd be scared at what you just might find. Which if you just, <laughs> I've just said just, but <laughs> if you say that, it doesn't really sound like something people say or sing. And you just put the word just in just to fill up the syllable count. I'm sorry, that's an incredibly pernickety thing, but <laughs> I find it annoying. Uh, so no, I don't like that song. I would take that off. And probably if I take it off that 13 minute song, it probably would fit onto a single album. But the other one I'm really not that keen on is um, Tears of a Clown, which is written for Robbie Williams, who had um, committed suicide. Um, prior to the album being released and the songs being written, I guess. Um, and I mean, it's very nice that they pay tribute to Robbie Williams, who, I mean, who doesn't love Robbie Williams? I say Robbie Williams, I mean Robin Williams, goodness me, sorry. I mean, nothing against Robbie Williams, but Robin Williams. <laughs> sorry guys, it's who I mean. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I felt the song was, just very on the nose. It's a nice tribute. Um, musically, it's, I don't think there's anything interesting going on. And lyrically, just, I don't know. I don't think, I mean, I'm, I was happy to be corrected on, happy to be corrected on this, but I don't think I'm in a really, I think it's a Steve Harris composition. Steve Harris, Dave Murray, I think. And I just, maybe not Dave Murray, but I just don't think it's, um, they're the kind of guys that really are there to talk about mental health in kind of a sensitive and appropriate way. Well, being unfair, Steve Harris has certainly written a lot of songs about his inner darkness and things. But I guess that works when it's personal, but when he's sort of jumping into somebody else's mind and describing that, yeah, I don't think it works. Sorry. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's their last studio album. The last thing the band have sort of really done tour-wise is the Legacy of the Beast tour, which again is a sort of um, playing the classics kind of thing, but uh, it's um, really career-spanning stuff. So they've got some bits from the noughties, nineties, and the eighties, which is good. It was a great tour. Went to see them on that as well. Went to see them on the Book of Souls tour too. Sorry. Um, I don't know if you've been counting. I've seen them seven times, but um, I think I've represented that. Anyway, um, yeah, that went really well. Uh, they're still, well, they're still touring it. They had festival dates all over the world this summer, but uh, a number have been cancelled, and I think we can expect the rest to be cancelled, postponed fairly soon, which is a shame. But um, that's what has to happen because we don't want everyone getting coronavirus and dying. Least of all Iron Maiden who are now all in their 
the very late 60s or 70s and are probably amongst the most at-risk groups so definitely uh, <laughs> definitely don't want them kept in Corona so hopefully the tour will come back at some point and supposedly I mean I guess all the plans have been postponed a bit but uh, supposedly they have recorded a new album which they probably would have released this year maybe they still will that's just rumor and speculation but anyway that was kind of my potted history of Iron Maiden I hope if you weren't an Iron Maiden fan it's given you something I hope you dabble I hope you have a little listen I guess yeah I would say just go with Seventh Son on Blood of the Beast I think if you want to as a starting point if you are an Iron Maiden fan I hope that speaks to your experiences and I hope I've captured the band in a way that you recognize and found interesting hopefully and yeah as I said I tried to make it a little bit personal to me as well uh, I appreciate I've been chatting for quite a while now um, so I don't want to um, we'll wrap up but um, this is not Iron Maiden related but yeah just sort of as a follow-up to uh, one of the previous podcasts where I talked about Tottenham Hotspur and the furloughing and thing just to um, follow up on that uh, they have reversed their decision so staff all staff are being paid 100% of their wages up to April and May at least um, although some directors actually have taken a pay cut um, they're not making use of the government scheme now I think some staff are still being furloughed so you know program sellers and um, hot dog stand salesmen and people like that who obviously they ain't a, a match on they ain't got a job but um, they are still being paid 100% and not from the government which I think is what is the best thing I mean to be honest <laughs> if I could have 100% of my pay and no work for a couple of months I'd be all right with that. but anyway um, <laughs> so that's a good thing the main thing was a billion pound football club aren't taking government money and are paying their staff who haven't got work through no fault of their own so that is a good thing and I applaud them for that and I thank them for reversing that decision and I'm not going to hold it against them that they made the wrong call in the first place and have turned around I would rather people got it wrong and corrected themselves than just got it wrong and didn't <laughs> I said I've got to encourage people changing their stances it's no good sort of holding grudges I think so that's good and it's a good indicative of the Tottenham Hotspur Sports Trust who fought for that and the fan pressure as well and the media so that is all good and in even more positive news apparently the stadium is being converted um, to now I'm not 100% on the details so I could be a bit sketchy on this but um, uh, yeah they're going to use it for testing uh, for COVID-19 as a testing centre and I believe they're housing NHS staff there as well and possibly using some of the medical facilities too so that's good that's a great thing <laughs> I mean I imagine you can't just turn that round quickly so they're probably planning on that and probably should have announced it at the time as well but uh, yeah so that's positive so I'm happier with my football club again so I think that's all I've got to tell you today I hope <laughs> oh dear. again I probably should have said this at the start but if you're not an Iron Maiden fan and you don't want to know about Iron Maiden it's not a great entry to listen to but if you were curious um, then I hope that was interesting and uh, again good news back on Hotspur I will speak to you again soon thank you very much indeed for listening